I'm Fry. And I'm Bree, ranking all of the popes from Peter to Francis. And this is episode 72, Pope Honorius I. And this is going to be an episode with a few firsts, and the first episode in a long time where we have a lot of sources. But is that because of our new friend? No, it's not from our new friend. I wrote this episode a long time ago. We have lots of sources because crazy things are about to go down. Right off the bat, from a snippet in the Liber Pontificalis, we know that Honorius was born in Campania and that his father Petronius was a consul, which means that he came from one of the most elite families in the region. Beyond that, we don't really know anything about his pre-papal life, but he was elected to be pope within two days of the death of Boniface V, so we can assume that he was well-liked and a well-respected priest in Rome. And for the first time in a while, we don't actually have a mention of the Roman clergy waiting for imperial confirmation for the choice of Pope, and Honorius gets consecrated on the same day that he was elected, which is October 27, 625. Everything happened lickety-split this time. Oh, I guess. Do they just not need the approval anymore? Or is this, or they just don't care? Oh, they go need the approval. And oh, they care. For this, we can just kind of assume that the exarch was nearby and went, yeah, okay, I'll confirm that. That's fine. <laughs> it's that simple. And once he was made Pope, Honorius is also going to be super lickety-split when it comes to getting straight to work. Because we've seen Rome start to have, like, a little recovery since the papacy of Gregory the Great, but for all intents and purposes, Rome is still in shambles. I mean, we had a pope get leprosy. It wasn't even a whisper of its former glory at this point. It's basically unrecognizable to the Rome that it once was. We've seen some conversions, we've seen a tiny bit of rebuilding, but Honorius is now in a position to take this to a new level. Using his somewhat replenished coffers of the church and the land that they still owned thanks to all that patrimony of Pope Gregory, Honorius sponsored citywide restoration efforts. And I don't just mean for the churches, but for the whole of Rome. And this included having the aqueduct of Trajan repaired, which had been damaged by the Ostrogoths back in the siege of King Wittiges. So this is the first time since that, all the way back then, that Rome has water again that is not coming out of the Tiber. I mean, so this is huge. This would have already made a dramatic impact on diminishing the spread of disease, just to have water. Ooh, luxury. It's been a long time. Since Rome has had clean water. Imagine if you had to drink water out of the river where they throw all the criminals' bodies. Yeah, no, that's no good. His restoration efforts also preserved important Roman structures across the whole of the city. And of course, he restored many Christian spaces that had fallen into ruin and disrepair in the many, many sieges and sackings. The most important of these church restorations happened in St. Agnese Fuere Lemura, which is St. Agnes Outside the Walls, where he repaired the edifice 
and installed a new mosaic, which included his own likeness, which we'll look at in Facium Sanctus. And, according to the Liber Pontificalis, he re-roofed the entire St. Peter's with bronze roof tiles. So, we're seeing some really big efforts. There are two full pages in the Liber Pontificalis account on him, dedicated to all of the churches that he restores and rebuilds. So, we're talking big effort here. He also extended his restoration efforts in Italy in other ways because it was during his papacy that the Istrian churches in North Italy that had been in schism with Rome since the Three Chapters controversy finally reconcile and rejoin the church in 638. We don't know exactly how Honorius was able to accomplish the reconciliation due to a little lack of records in this section, but he does get credit from historian Edward Gibbon so we know that he played somewhat of a direct hand in bringing the Istrians back to the fold. Now, the only people who are outside of communion because of the three chapters is Aquileia, and they're going to come back in about 60 years. Also in Italy, he got involved in the latest happenings with the Lombards, and this had to do with King Adelwald, the son of King Agilulf and Queen Theodolinda. We spoke about Adelwald a little bit and hinted what happened to him in Adeodatus' episode, you know, that he allegedly went sane and was deposed in 626. Well, 626 is the year after Honorius becomes Pope. So Adelwald was deposed by a man called Ariald, who happened to be an Arian and extremely hostile towards the church. So as a result, Honorius continues to support Adelwald as the true king and tried to work with the Byzantine exarch Isaac to see him restored, right up to the point of Adelwald's mysterious death in 628. Mysterious. He was probably killed by the exarch Isaac. We can assume that even after the death of Adelwald, Honorius tried to resist the reign of Ariold who was busy trying to make the Lombards Aryan again, if you will. Ugh. Yeah, he's a pretty bad man. <laughs> he actually marries Adelwald's sister, Gundeberga, as a way to legitimize his claim to the throne. And then once he was made king, he had her swiftly locked away in a monastery on charges of plotting against him, which were likely untrue. Paul the Deacon provides us a little flavor on this event in his History of the Lombards. He says, One day that Adelulf, a nobleman in the king's service, was a man of goodly stature. And Adelulf, hearing this, proposed to her, Gundeberga, that she should be unfaithful in her marriage vow. What? Yeah, he's not a good dude. They say that he's a man of goodly stature. He is not a good dude. She scorned his proposal, whereupon he charged that she had granted a secret interview to Tazo, Duke of Tuscany, and had promised to poison the king and raise Tazo to the throne. She wouldn't sleep with me, so I told the king he was plotting against her. What a piece of trash. So, upon this, Ariald imprisoned her in a fortress. Two years afterwards, Clothar II, king of the Franks, sent ambassadors to Ariald asking why she had been imprisoned, and when the reason was given, one of the ambassadors suggested a trial by battle to ascertain her guilt or innocence. The duel accordingly took place. 
Adolf was slain by the queen's champion, and she was restored to her royal dignity. Adolf is dead, Ariald sucks, as do the men in his court, and the Pope doesn't like him one bit. But he wasn't currently in a position to change it, really. But at least we know that Gundeberga got free in the end. Beyond this, Honorius might have also been the first pope to implement the celebration of the Elevation of the Cross, which is a strict fasting day observed on September 14th. And it is associated with St. Helen, who is the mother of Emperor Constantine, who on the 14th of September was said to have discovered the lost and buried true cross in Golgotha and brought it to the possession of the Jerusalem Christians. Allegedly, in the place where she found the cross, she also found a holy basil plant. I love basil. I love basil, especially holy basil. Holy basil, Thai basil, best basil. Good basil. So good. The celebration of the Holy Cross had likely already been in practice, particularly after 630 when Christians recovered said cross from the Persians who had captured it in 614. But Honorius is likely the first pope to make this, this practice a liturgical commemoration. So on the home front, Honorius is doing pretty good. He's rebuilding and beautifying the city, caring for people on a practical level by restoring basic needs like water. He's trying to involve himself in local secular politics and implementing new religious liturgy. This alone would score him halfway decent. But he is not going to be satisfied with halfway decent because he also devotes his attention to missionary efforts following in the footsteps of our last few popes. So where do you think he concentrated his international attention? Where is everybody going right now? Isn't it like England or whatever? German, whatever's up there. It is England. <laughs> well, it's Wessex and Sussex and all of those things. So Europe. He, <laughs> Italy is in Europe too. Yeah, fine. The North. He's going to England. Britannia. <laughs> all of those places. I'm so sorry, Small Bean. <laughs> I know none of your history. Well, we're going to get there. We're going to spend a lot of time with England, so don't worry about it. So he decides to look at England, both through personal contact and sending of missionaries. So he sent St. Berenius, the apostle to the West Saxons, to Wessex to convert the Saxons, establish churches, and serve as the first bishop of Dorchester, all of which he was able to do with the West Saxon king Sinegal's permission, who also converted and was baptized. He also bestowed special honor to Bishop St. Paulinus in York and Honorius of Canterbury, Honorius, not that Honorius, by sending each of them a pallium to designate their bishoprics as metropolitan bishoprics with greater reach and authority. Pope Honorius also wrote a letter to the King Edwin in Northumbria, encouraging him to embrace the true faith and convert. Both this letter and a letter the Pope would write to Bishop Honorius are preserved in Bede's Ecclesiastical History of England in Chapter 17. And because we have so much more to cover, not going to quote it for you. Honorius also wrote to the Irish clergy, which, remember, had been established way back with St. Patrick in Celestine's episode, which was Episode 45, and he wrote to them to deal with a long-contested issue. Same issue we had in Ireland last time. It's snakes. 
What did you say, snake? Yeah, I sure did. I said snakes. <laughs> this is not that issue. This is an issue we have dealt with for so long. It's Easter. I know. I just wanted to yell snakes. Snakes. It's a snake. Oh, it's a snake. <laughs> oh, we're showing our age there, aren't we? Maybe. So it turns out that the Irish clergy were still using their own computations to determine the date of Easter through a computation that they believed was brought to Ireland by St. Patrick. And this was an 84-year calculation called a Laticus, where the rest of the church is using a 19-year metonic calculation. I'm not even going to go into explaining that anymore. 84 years versus 19 years. Okay. We briefly mentioned this in Boniface IV's episode, episode 69, when St. Columbanus had wrote to the Pope looking for confirmation that their calculations were correct, and remember, he'd gotten no answer. Well, now they have an answer, and their calculations are wrong. So now Pope Honorius is urging the Irish to stop using those calculations and take on the universal calculation that the rest of Christendom had adopted. We also get this from Bede. I will quote for you. The same Pope Honorius also wrote to the Irish, whom he had found to err in the observance of the holy festival of Easter, as has been shown above, with subtlety of argument, exhorting them not to think themselves, few as they were, placed in the utmost borders of the earth, wiser than all the ancient and modern churches of Christ throughout the world, and not to celebrate a different Easter, contrary to the Paschal celebration and the decrees of all the bishops upon earth sitting in synod. Hey, you guys are not smarter than everyone else. You need to get on board with our calculations. So this led to a synod at Malane. I have no idea if I'm pronouncing that correctly. The internet had no guiding sources. M-A-G-H-L-E-N-E. -E. I'm sure we're going to hear about it. So there you go. This synod, where the congregated clergy determined, not unanimously, but in majority, that they would defer to the calculations used everywhere else due to their obedience to the apostolic see. And we get this information from the famous Pascal letter of Cumian. The synod also sent a delegation of bishops to meet with the Pope in Rome, presumably to confirm the decisions, meet with the Pope, learn the new calculations, and then once they returned to Ireland in 633, the Roman calculations were officially adopted in the south of Ireland. The north, however, we will come back to that. But not now. Honorius also reached out to Spain, which we mentioned before has recently converted to Orthodox Christianity from Arianism in 587 in the Visigothic Kingdom under King Ricard. Recorded. And as Orthodox Christianity began to grow in Spain, Honorius sent letters of instruction and advice to ensure a unified faith and properly conducted religious practice. At his urging, several councils were held in Spain to organize the church's newly converted territory and bring them into Orthodox observance. There is a letter from St. Braulio, who is the Bishop of Zaragoza, written to Pope Honorius. That suggests maybe Honorius had implied that the Spanish bishops had been lax in the time since conversion, but the future saint, Braulio, defended the Spanish bishops well and encouraged further religious zeal and church order. 
We also need to mention that Honorius becomes the first pope that we have record of commenting on the newest growing religion in the East. Yeah, what's that? The rise of Islam. To be clear, this is not the birth of Islam, and I will give you the most oversimplified chronology ever that Muhammad the prophet experienced his revelations in about 610, and 622 is the year zero in the Muslim calendar for what they call the Hijri era. With Honorius, we're now in the 630s, and Islam is spreading like wildfire. And although this might not be the papacy's first exposure to it, it is the first time that we have papal commentary on it. Which was to compare the new religion to Arianism. Oh. I have a quote from Jesus Prophet of Islam by Muhammad Uttar ur Rahim and Ahmed Thompson, which conveys Honorius' sentiment about Islam on page 148. Quote, Pope Honorius was aware of the rising tide of Islam, whose tenets very much resembled those of Arius. The mutual killing of Christians by each other was still fresh in his memory, and perhaps he thought that what he had heard about the Islam might be applied in healing the differences between various Christian sects. In his letters, he began to support the doctrine of one mind within the doctrine of the Trinity. He argued that if God had three independent minds, the result would be chaos. This logical and reasonable conclusion pointed to the belief in existence of one God. So, he knows that Islam exists. But the main thing that comes to the forefront in Honorius's papacy is something we need to spend a little bit more time on. And this is monothelitism and monoenergism. We very briefly mentioned these things before in our episode on the Second Council of Constantinople. But when we did mention them, it was only in passing as a, this is the next big thing to come up. And so now it is the thing that is coming up. And it is more Christology! Oh boy. So, first, in its basic definition, monothelitism is basically the belief that Christ only had one will. And so far, in short, it kind of does seem like just taking the word nature out of monophysitism and replacing it with will. And it kind of is, but it also kind of isn't. The monothelite would argue that, yes, Christ had two natures of human and divine, but that his will was God's will, and therefore singular. And this view is presented as a compromise between the Orthodox and the Monophysites by not challenging the hypostatic union as it's presented in the Chalcedonian definition, but still sticking with a singular divinity with one will. Monoenergism, by the way, is essentially the same thing as monothelitism, but instead of Christ having one will, the monoenergists say he has one energy, and they don't really elaborate on the difference. So, these were the theologies that at the time of Honorius's papacy, the Byzantine emperor Heraclius was trying to promote, along with the bishop of Constantinople, Sergius, as a, as a new means of bringing the churches of East and West into harmony. And this is how it comes to Honorius' attention. So, in 634, the Pope receives a letter from the Bishop of Constantinople, Sergius, explaining the Monothelite theology and the controversy that it's causing in the East. Sergius, like Heraclius, was a proponent of Monothelitism and hoped the Pope would confirm this idea of a singular divine will to protect the Church against a debate about 
two wills. And the two wills would be called diophilitism, right? Mono, dio. Makes sense to me. And why they're concerned about diophilitism is that it might suggest that Christ had conflicting wills of humanity and divinity, since human will was tainted by the fall of Adam, and two conflicting wills would be perilously close to Nestorianism. If you're with me so far? I am a little bit. It's basically we're having the same monophysitism argument just about wills now. Oh, fun. Honorius then sent a deacon called Gaius to a synod that was being held in Cyprus by Archbishop Arcadius II to address monophyletism and monoenergism. Sergius and Arcadius represented the pro-monophyletism and monoenergism, and against them were Sophronius of Jerusalem and Maximus the Confessor. We are going to come back to Maximus the Confessor quite a bit, so... The long and short of this council was essentially that monoenergism got shunted out to the side, no one really cared about it, and the emperor and the bishop of Constantinople confirmed support for monophyletism. These judgments are brought back to Honorius, who then decides he's going to respond to Sergius's letter. His letter reaches Constantinople in 635, and in the letter, Honorius in majority agrees with Sergius. He confirms that Christ does not have conflicting wills and cites that the Chalcedonian definition to confirm the natures of Christ were indivisible, which may suggest a single will, and that discussion of two wills does sound a bit Nestorian. He says, Wherefore we acknowledge one will of our Lord Jesus Christ, for evidently it was our nature and not the sin in it which was assumed by the Godhead. That is to say, the nature which was created before sin, not the nature which was vitiated by sin. He's kind of like, yeah, okay, yeah, I agree. Christ does not have conflicting wills. That doesn't make sense. And he finishes the letter by agreeing, again with Sergius, that all debates on Christological issues of wills and energies should be completely halted. And when Sergius receives the letter, he takes Honorius's words to be ones of confirmation. Although modern historians will hotly contest whether or not what Honorius said was actually support for monophyletism, or whether it's a vague implication of interpretation. But for the moment, this issue was solved, and it wasn't until after Honorius's death that Sergius would publish something called the Ecthesis with the Emperor, compelling the whole world of the Byzantine Empire to confess their faith in a single will of Christ. So for the rest of Honorius's time, the matter's silence. They've they've kind of they're in a in a general state of agreement. So Pope Honorius died. Oh, he's dead already. Jesus. He's dead, yeah. Of natural causes. He was buried in Old St. Peter's, and his tomb was destroyed for New St. Peter's. The usual. But we have two epitaphs for him. So his original epitaph from the time of death reads. The godly rewards of praise purify the great shepherd who, having acted in Peter's stead, possesses highest things. For the bishop Honorius is distinguished by this tomb, and his magnanimous name and honor remain. For governing the jurisdiction of the apostolic see by his merits, he called back those who were scattered and brought in very good revenue. And being mentally shrewd, mighty in holy incantation, this shepherd knew how to lead the sheep to life. For Istria, long exhausted by savage schism, at your admonition return to the ordinance of the fathers. 
Under you, the perfidy of the Jewish people were conquered. Thus you make the faithful flock of the Lord to be one. Your skillful care of the homeland provided the long-for quiet for the people everywhere. You possessed the honor of the pontiffs by your powerful teaching that consecrated a holy life for you. In you hallowed teachers, the interpretations of your great words always shone out and fruitfully, for you walked in the footsteps of great Gregory. And you followed eagerly, you also displayed merit. Possess, as Christ deigns, the everlasting day of eternal light, together with the Holy Fathers. With this epitaph I have deservedly made you in this verse, by it may I well remember this exceptional father. And then there is a later epitaph that is provided in Wendy J. Reardon's book. Who will grant me an end to my great weeping? Would that my soul's mourning would leave me room to speak the truth. Even if my words burst forth in sobbing tears, I, your disciple, will most surely speak of you. Servant of Christ, your generosity showed that you were a father. Thomas, your pure living, that you were honest. Virginity lived with you from the cradle, and truth remained with you to the end of your life. You brought forth chaste words with your innocent lips. You taught in a godly way by being patient and sparing. You were always sober. We used to sing of how you were modest. You were truthful and consoled the afflicted. Aquileia has long been blinded by ancient error, rejecting the right faith spread from heaven. Treading the rough places of the roads, the snowy paths of the mountain, untiring, prudent, you reattached those who had been cut off. So it's pretty good, right? We had some real passive-aggressive ones. And these are real nice. But it's not time to rate him. Oh no, okay. Fake out! <laughs> because in 680, 40 years after Pope Honorius died, he was anathematized as a heretic in the Third Council of Constantinople. Oh no! Yeah, this good Pope man has gone down as excommunicated and anathematized and a heretic. What had happened? Well, do you have any guesses? Easter. <laughs> Easter's always a good guess, but no, it comes back to that whole monothelitism thing. Snakes. Oh, I would love it if he was excommunicated for snakes. We're not going to go over the whole council here. The Third Council of Constantinople will get its own episode when we come to it in the historical narrative. And we are going to see the continuing development of the monothelite controversy play out in our next few Pope episodes in some very dramatic ways, so we're not going to get to the whole of it here. Just what concerns poor Pope Honorius. The council was held in 680 by Emperor Constantine IV and Pope Agatho to settle the ongoing monoenergism and monothelitism controversies. It concluded with the council canons declaring that Christ had two energies and two wills, so dioenergism and diophelitism, and therefore condemning both monoenergism and monothelitism and all of their adherents. And this means because of his letter to Sergius, where he kind of agreed with Sergius, this includes Pope Honorius. And he is condemned in the canon of the 13th session, which says, And with these we define that there shall be expelled from the Holy Church of God and anathematized Honorius, who was sometime Pope of Old Rome, because of what was found written by him, to Sergius, that in all respects he followed his view and confirmed his impious doctrines. And then, in the declarations of the 16th century, we have, To Theodore of Farron, the heretic, anathema. To Sergius, the heretic, anathema. To Cyrus, the heretic, anathema. To Honorius, 
the heretic anathema. Anathema. <laughs> yeah. To Pyrrhus, the heretic anathema. Because Pope Agatho died in the middle of the council proceedings, his successor, Pope Leo II, would be the one to confirm the canons of the council, and in his letter of confirmation, he addresses the condemnation of Honorius slightly differently. He says, We anathematize the inventors of the new error, that is, Theodore, Sergius, and also Honorius, who did not attempt to sanctify this apostolic church with the teaching of the apostolic tradition, but by profane treachery permitted his purity to be polluted. In this confirmation of the canons, he isn't referring to Honorius as a practicing heretic, but rather condemns him for not taking a strong stance against the heretical theology which allowed orthodoxy to be tainted. But, as we will see in canons from the subsequent synod, the Trulin Synod of 692, for the wider purpose of the whole church, Honorius had effectively been condemned as a heretic, and this is going to be his lasting legacy. We will even see a papal oath recorded in the Liber Diurnus, which condemns Honorius who added fuel to their wicked assertions. Honorius goes down as the heretic pope. Oh, well, okay. Not so honorable, is he? No. And this presents another huge problem in the legacy of the papacy as a whole. Because Honorius being condemned as a heretic becomes one of the main arguments against the dogma of papal infallibility. I mean, we've discussed minor challenges to infallibility with Pope Marcellinus and Liberius and Zosimus, but this is the first time we have a pope actually fully and officially being condemned as an out-and-out -out heretic. And since papal infallibility is dogma that literally states the pope cannot err in the definition of doctrine by virtue of the apostolic succession from Peter, Honorius presents a very real and dangerous challenge to this idea. Because, look, everything may have changed later on, but, like, he wasn't wrong then. Their argument is saying he, he's talking about doctrine, right? He's talking about the wills of Christ. They are never supposed to be wrong about the wills of Christ. And this becomes a huge point of contention during the First Vatican Council in 1870. So we're talking so much later, and it potentially threatened to overturn the whole concept of infallibility as a whole. In the end, it was determined through some serious mental gymnastics that because Honorius was speaking about it in a personal letter rather than speaking ex cathedra, which is from the throne or with the full authority of the office in an encyclical, that it didn't touch infallibility. It's not at stake anymore. He didn't have his Pope hat on. He was out of character. <laughs> And this caveat is what remains on the whole infallibility argument today. The Pope is only infallible when speaking ex cathedra now. Wild. Yeah, it's pretty crazy. They have to roleplay being Pope. They do. They have to get in character, they have to get up on that throne, and they have to write it in an encyclical otherwise. They also argue that because Pope Leo II's condemnation of Honorius was over his negligence rather than his heresy, that he wasn't a heretic after all. The whole thing is very dicey and barely holds up to scrutiny, but this is the issue that Pope Honorius has since posed for the church, and it is a very long and problematic legacy. Was whoever that did this originally just bored? 
What am I going to say today about someone who's dead? I'm bored. (laughs) They were talking about infallibility and they were trying to make it dogma that the Pope can never be wrong. And someone's like, but hey, there was that Pope who was excommunicated as a heretic. How do you reconcile that? So quickly before we go on and rate him, I just want to present a little bit of scholarship and a primary source material that was in defense of Honorius. Because, you know, a posthumous anathematization over a letter is pretty harsh, and I feel for him. So one of Honorius's early defenders was future Pope John IV, who wrote his Apology for Pope Honorius. We don't have a nickname for this, John. Oh, it's coming so soon. Don't you worry. So soon. In his apology for Pope Honorius, he argues that basically, Honorius seems to only confirm a stance of one will because it's an outright rejection of contrary or conflicting wills, so that he's misunderstood in his intention. And this is a fairly consistent argument that is made by his supporters at the time, like St. Maximus of Constantinople and historians to this day. Here's a quote from Yaroslav Pelikan's The Spirit of Eastern Christendom, where he says, It is evident, as Maximus noted in Exoneration of Honorius, that his opposition to the idea of two wills was based on the interpretation of two wills as two contrary wills. He did not mean that Christ was an incomplete human being devoid of a human will, but that as a human being, He did not have any action in his body, nor any will in his soul that could be contrary to the action and will of God, that is, to the action and will of his own divine nature. Of course, there are also some more extravagant defenses, particularly in the 15th and 16th century, when we see figures like Albert Pigius and Cardinal Cesare Baronius, who argue that the condemnation of Honorius in the Third Council of Constantinople never happened and was just a later fabrication, which is extremely, extremely unlikely. It probably definitely happened. So now, now we can talk about raiding him. This is going to be an interesting one, because we have a lot of discussion to have. Papatum infallium. In his own time, he was highly respected, and he died with no stain on his reputation. He ended the Istrian three-chapter schism. He may have started the elevation of the cross celebration. He organized and administrated the churches of Spain. He was heavily involved with the continuing conversion of Britain. He brought Ireland into proper Easter calculation. These are all amazing things. He did a lot. But then after he dies, he's condemned as a heretic and anathematized. He's the main argument against papal infallibility, fairly or unfairly. This category is literally called Papatum Infallium. There are good things to consider, but we also have to consider this lasting legacy of being the heretic pope that overshadows the majority of his reputation. I kind of want to give him like a seven. I want to score him high, like, mm-hmm, hey, water, clean water. And and we will give him that in Seculari and Pactum, too, so we will definitely give a good score there. But um, for me, I, I'm trying to, if you're going to give him a 7, I'm, I'm looking at this as, I would have probably given him about a 7, too. With everything that he did, I would have given him about a 7. But because of the posthumous stain and the struggle that he puts on the papacy 
I have to knock it down to like a four. Mm. The arguments against him are pretty important arguments. So he'll get an 11, which is good. I'm glad it's above 10. Just a little. Fructus prohibits him. This dude is the heretic pope and he's been excommunicated. Is there a higher scandal in all of Christendom? I'm sure there is somewhere. I only want to give him like a five. You only want to give him a five for being excommunicated? Look, it was people after he died who were like, this man. It's true, but even then, like, it's good scandal score. We gave Marcellinus a 17. We gave Zosimus a 15. We gave... I feel bad that he was just trying his best. He's not a trash man by any means. Like, he was just going about his day, and someone several years later was like, I don't like that. It's true, it's true, but remember, we award points for Scandal. So I'm, I'm giving him a full-out 10. He is, he's literally a heretic pope. Whether he did it on purpose or not, there's no way I can give him anything less than a 10. So you can give him a 5. I'm giving him a 5. Look, just some other dude decided that he was going to be... That dude needs a bigger heresy score for being a piece of sh**. So you're already condemning the Third Council of Constantinople. So when we get to it, you're going to be so mad. There are popes who are really, really, and I do mean really, going to suffer in this monothelitism debate. So, yeah, um, no, I'm not giving him anything less than a 10. You can give him your 5, he'll get a 15, which I think is a low score for a pope who was excommunicated. But hey, that's all right. Seculari impactum. Dude, he brought back drinking water. He brought back the aqueduct. He restored Rome, not just churches, but structures, walls, the aqueduct. This is huge for all the people of Rome. They're not going to have the level of disease anymore. It's going to be much better. He supported the rightful king of the Lombards, even if that rightful king was crazy and died mysteriously. We have Saxons converting. Like, to me, again, this is for the drinking water alone, I almost want to give him ten. Yeah, a ten is good there. Yeah, okay, so we'll give him a twenty in Seculare Impactum, because not having to- it, you, Okay, yeah. For giving it to a Deodatus for leprosy, we gotta give a twenty to Honorius for drinking water and reducing disease. I'm about that. Fossium Sanctus. Okay, I'm gonna send you the one that we always judge on. It's- we're looking at a, a younger Pope man again, so here you go. I like it. He looks very jovial. We usually have such angry, disappointed, tired-looking popes, and he looks so chipper. I like it. He looks pleased. Yeah, he looks like he, he like somebody just said something lovely to him, and he's just about to smile. They were like, you're beautiful, and he was like, oh, that's exactly it, yes. I like it a lot. We're going to rate on this one, but I am going to show you the contemporary image of him, which is pretty exciting. So, I don't know. It's good. I really like a young, happy-looking Pope. This is like a... I'm going to give it a nine. Yeah, he looks like someone I could be a friend to. Totally. He doesn't look like an evil heretic at all. <laughs> How dare they besmirch him? I mean, for me, the tens are straight up going to go to Popes who look hilarious. Oh, fair. All right. I'm going to give him a 10. I want to give him a 10. I mean, he's he's adorable. I want to... He's a, he's a bean. He is a small bean. 
He's not small, but he is a bean. We don't know how big he was. Well, we'll look at the image of him as a full body. We can decide if he is a bean or a small bean. So he will get a 4.75 in that category, which is, oh gosh, I think that is the highest score we've given in a long time. There's was a hot Pope that we gave a really high score to. Caius, yeah, Caius definitely got a high score. He got a four. I think Leo did pretty, oh, Leo got a five. So he is the second highest scorer in our Facium Sanctus round. He's got so much emotion in his face, it's not grump. Yeah, he looks so precious. Here is the, um, the St. Agnes outside the walls, um, the actual mosaic done by him. And I have a close-up of him. This is a contemporary image of him carrying the church. Everybody's got to be carrying the church. He's not late, though, so. He's not late, no. He doesn't get Starbucks. I love how that's continued to be a thing, because we got another one recently, and I just was like, this is the best ever. I mean, it's 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 a man. He kind of has the same hair going on. You can tell that he is a young man in this as well. So that's kind of cool. I like it. He's got some dainty Birkenstocks on here. They do look like Birkenstocks. So now you can compare him to everyone else. He does look a little on the small side, don't you think? He is much shorter than, well, I don't know. I think they're all the same height. Just the one in the middle looks taller because of the halo. Mm, it's true. You can see their halo. Halo, halo. He just gets to be a bean. Church bean. Church bean. Tempus Pontificus. October 27th, 625 to October 12th, 638. That's a total of 13 years and a score of 3.25. All right, everybody, it's the canon bonus round! Do, 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 do. No. <laughs> the excommunicated pope is definitely not a saint. Of course not. I literally just wrote, definitely not. <laughs> Not even for all the good deeds he did. He did so good. Got rid of the three chapters that were plaguing us forever. Got rid of the actual plague. Literally solved some of Easter too, which has been plaguing us even longer. All these plagues have been gotten rid of by this man and you excommunicate him. I'm so mad. I know. Total score though, I gotta say, he did very well. Holy scored 54 points which puts him in second place <laughs> after sir 69 that means he scored better than pope gregory the great and peter and leo <laughs> i'm not changing a thing i absolutely think that's appropriate you wanted me to give him five more scandal points <laughs> oh he would have been so close he would have had 59 points so with that in mind, I have to ask you a question. I think I know the answer here. Is he papally enough and pizzazzy enough with an impact enough for a papal bull? I want to give it to him. I want to besmirch the besmirchers. Exactly. I was prepared to fight you on this if you weren't going to give it to him because absolutely Honorius has a papal bull. We will redeem him. Congratulations, Honorius. Nothing you said about him was like, ooh, scandalous, ooh, scary. And then you're like, they excommunicated him. And it's like, what plot twist? 
he is a really good pope, and we are going to give him credit for being a really good pope, because he went, yeah, Jesus' wills don't fight inside of him, does not make him a heretic. <laughs> I feel really good about this. The fact that he's in second place is probably the funniest thing I've ever heard. I thought our first place one was funnier. Someone asked us recently what the absolute max that a pope could get if he scored in every single category. And I figured it out. And it, it is going to be very difficult to beat Damasus. That doesn't, doesn't mean it's impossible. But if you consider that our three categories and facium sanctus give you 65, if you max out, it's possible because it comes down to sainthood and tempus pontificus. And there will be popes that reign longer than him, so we'll see what happens. We're not going to do a full Pope watch for this, but I'm just going to throw it out there because it was in our last episode. We talked about the Benedict and Cardinal Sarah book coming out. Apparently, Pope Benedict is really, really not happy about being considered a co-author on that book right now. He's denying it. As in, like, he maybe just was like, here's my thoughts. Well, he's like, I wrote this chapter. I did not agree to be a co-author. I didn't know if he was doing, like, the Gandalf. I have no recollection of this place. The saga has continued. This morning alone, there have been so many different stories. There is another cardinal claiming that Benedict had no idea what was going to happen. And then there's Cardinal Sarah, who's coming out and going to say, no, he absolutely helped. He even helped pick the cover of the book, you numpties. And so there's a mystery to be solved. I mean, he is an old man. He could just be suffering from a case of the old. Well, there's that. There's that. So it's not worth a whole Pope watch, but eventually we'll find out whether or not he intended to write a book or not. Because that's a thing. And because we're recording for the third day in a row and we've made so many thank yous in the last couple days, we don't have any new ones to thank, but there's going to be this point where we're going to get have one episode where we record like next week and we'll have a whole bunch to fit in. So thank you to Totalis Rankium and Rex Factor and all of the Rexipods for being awesome. And thanks for listening. Goodbye. Bye. Thank you.